You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Well, thanks for having me. How's everyone this morning? Are you well? Um, I need to just introduce my family to you. Uh, there's a photograph here. This is uh, my wife, Dale, on the right-hand side. There's me looking a bit cheesy there. Um, my be- two beautiful daughters, Charlotte and Mackenzie, and my son, Harrison. Mackenzie's uh, my oldest, 21, uh, and Harrison's 19, and Charlotte is 17. And uh, we've been uh, married, my wife and I have been married 23 years, so it's getting pretty serious now. Um, and uh, it's been a real privilege to be involved in ministry for about 23 years, I think, 23 years doing sort of formal ministry stuff. And so it's a privilege to be here with you today uh, to share this time together. Um, little, little known fact um, that this month, October, is Pastor Appreciation Month. Did anyone know this, this factoid? Uh, it's actually a fact, everyone. Uh, I want to let you know if you're getting your phones out right now and putting it in there as a regular annual event to make sure you appreciate your pastors. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about leadership in a church community is no one really knows what it's like to sit in the seat of leadership till you sat in the seat of leadership. Everyone's got an opinion, uh, which is fine, um, but leadership isn't easy. And today um, I wanted to do something. You know when you go to someone's house, right? You should bring a gift with you. Does anyone do that? You bring the box of favourites and so forth. I feel like I've come to your house this morning and I've come to bring a little gift. So I've got a box of Krispy Kremes here, um, Pastor Ben, to honour you, brother. Um, just to say thank you, Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, may you eat those well and may you stay skinny and, and uh, fit looking as you enjoy those with your family, uh, Tran and your wonderful children. Pastor Appreciation Month, everyone. Get into it, okay? I'm, I'm sowing in order that I meant potentially I could reap by the end of this month. We'll see how we go. So we're in the book of Mark, everyone. Have you, how have you been enjoying this series? Have you been leaning in? Have you been getting a clearer, clearer picture of who Jesus is? One of the reasons I love this church is you're interested and focused on being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, it's actually very easy to uh, lose track and become a disciple of church. Uh, don't, be, don't be involved in the process of being a disciple of church, actually. Uh, be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus, church will change, church will uh, adapt and evolve over the course of time. Some things you'll love and some things you'll go, oh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but if you're a disciple of Jesus, you'll be robust. Uh, and the reason why we're going to the book of Mark really is to help you grow in your ability to be a, a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31, so I thought we'd read that start up. Is that all right, everyone? I think we've got it on the screens, so I'll have a crack. Here we go. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Next slide. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little, uh, who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness, uh, false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Next slide. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything for you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who will be first will be last and the last first. This is the word of God. I come from an back, Anglican background, and everyone says, uh, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. That's what they say. It's always good to read the word of God, isn't it? So there's a lot we could talk about in this section of scripture, but we're going to focus on this middle section, which is the interaction of Jesus and what we call the rich young ruler. And there's one of these hard sayings of Jesus that is in the middle of this. And the hard saying, which we've just read, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so if you're taking notes today, the title of this message is called Camels and Cash. Camels and Cash. So in this scripture, we're posed with this question as, as the reader Uh, reading this, we're posed with this question, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus is addressing this very essential question, what it means to be a Christian. He's explaining how to become a Christian. It can be easily misunderstood as we look at this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. It's called the rich young ruler, not necessarily because of this depiction in Mark 10, but actually as you read the same depiction in Luke 18 and Matthew 19, you get a little bit more information about the nature of this young man. But Jesus is explaining how to be a Christian and he brings up the topic of money. Uh, Another way to put it is if you want to be a Christian, actually money is an issue, everyone. Money is actually an issue. And we're being taught here in this particular uh, reading today about the dangers of money and wealth, the dangers of camels and cash, so to speak. Jesus is saying it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is actually setting up a very delicate balance here. Jesus is calling into question whether this man uh, has eternal life because it appears that this rich man has blown it. So he walks away sad, right? 
And the response of the disciples to this interaction, and then the man's response as he walks away sad, it's telling. Because they don't say, the disciples don't say to Jesus, ah, the rich can't get into heaven. That's good, because I never liked the rich people to begin with. Like, they don't say that, do they? No. Nor do they say, oh, the rich can't get into heaven. Ah, that's good, because I'm not rich, so that's no skin off my nose. They don't say that either. What they say is, if this young man can't get into heaven, then we can't. Like, if this guy can't, then who the heck can? The rich young ruler would have been known in the area, in this region, because of his wealth, because he had, he had influence, he was a ruler. And there was something about this fella that was morally commendable. There was something about this guy, his attitude, the fact that he's most likely attained his wealth, not because of corrupt kind of uh, exploitive or unjust means, but he's most likely acquired his wealth because of uh, hard work, faithfulness, uh, you know, vision, discipline. Um, interesting, when Jesus lists these sort of Ten Commandments, I don't know if you noticed in there, there was one that was not necessarily in the Ten Commandments. It was the question of, have you defrauded? Have you taken from others? Have you exploited others in your acquisition of wealth? And his answer there is, is no. And he, he responds with all these sort of commandments. He says, all of these that I've, I've kept since I was a boy, which is interesting because you and I both know and that this conversation has sort of begun with this man and Jesus about this definition of what is good. And uh, Jesus doesn't reply to this st statement as he says, I've kept, it as, I've kept them all as I was a boy. He doesn't say to him, you're a liar, which he could have, right? Because everyone's broken. There's no one perfect. There's no one who's morally got it correct 100% of the time. But he doesn't say liar to him. He kind of accepts it. And the disciples' response show that this man has enormous moral attractiveness, character, virtue. That's why when, they walk, when he walks away, they say, man, if this guy's not worthy of the kingdom of God, I don't know who is. So there's this sensitive balance going on in this story. And let me explain it to you why it's a sensitive balance in this topic of money. Because on one hand, Jesus is uh, essentially, he's not... Um, you know, he has no problems with money. So he has no ideological problems with money uh, or wealth creations. He's not saying here that wealth is intrinsically bad or it's like automatically evil. But on the other hand, he's saying it's easier for a camel to go for, through an eye of a needle than it is for someone to enter the kingdom of God. So he's also providing a warning about finances. This is consistent with Paul's discussion on money and First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Uh, so it's not necessarily money that's the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. And we kind of all know this. And so what Jesus is essentially saying in this interaction with the rich young ruler, is he's basically saying uh, money has a power to blind us to the gospel and to the kingdom of God unless there is an external intervention by God in someone's life. 
So I saw this, I saw this video the other day, and um, I, really like, I really liked it. It's a little bit abstract, so I apologise in advance if you're thinking this is a bit strange. Um, welcome to Adam's world. I'm a little bit uh, non-linear in my thinking. Um, but I saw this. It's a picture of a pug, okay? It's, it's, it's got a little bit of sound, but there's no talking. And Mr. Mr. Pug here, he's, he's, he's convinced, right? He's convinced that the shadow is the running water. But the running water is like right there, folks. But he is looking at the shadow and he's trying to drink from the shadow. See, see, wealth has this capacity, money has this capacity to blind you from the kingdom of God, blind you from seeing actually that true life, true living water is found in the king and his kingdom, not in our kingdoms or our acquisition of wealth. And sometimes we can be drinking from the shadow of these things and feeling like we're satisfied, right? But the living water is sitting right there. Money has the capacity. Money's not bad in itself, but if we are using it to fill our hearts with a sense of significance and value, we'll find ourselves feeling like we still are missing something. Does that make sense? I love that little picture. We're a bit like the pug. Sorry, if you didn't know you're a pug this morning, welcome. Uh, you're in good company. It's all good. Um, but we look at our rich young ruler, and on the outside, he's got it all together, right? So he's got money, power, virtuousness, character. He's probably really good looking. Um, it's like it's hard to be rich and young and not good looking. Um, actually, some people try to pull it off, but it's pretty difficult to do. Um, but he must have been troubled, right? There must have been something going on to cause him to go to Jesus and ask him the question, how do I inherit eternal life? And so you've got to put this into its context, right? You've got to put this moment into its context because any devout Jew would have known the answer to this question because rabbis all the time were posing this question. How does one inherit eternal life? And then the rabbi would teach, right? And so the response to this question was always the same. There's no other answer in those ancient times. For the, for, the, for the Jewish person, they would say, well, it's to obey the statutes of God and to avoid sin. That's pretty much it. Pretty much it. So this man would have known the answer. He would have. But why did he go to Jesus? He was troubled. I think he was troubled. The rich young ruler was socially successful, he was successful socially, economically, religiously, morally. I reckon he was wondering if there was something that he'd missed. Have I missed something? Actually, in this life, is this, is this it? Is there, is there more? Jesus, have I missed it? Something seems to be missing. And I think that thought, mixed in with a sense that his heart was troubled, Maybe he was trying to vindicate himself to Jesus as well at the same time. I've been a heck of a guy. Let me tell you about it. I've arrived. I've kept all of these commandments since I was, boy, since I was a boy. I mean, the moral self-confidence in this moment, it's astounding, really. So when I say something was missing, I, I think there was. Something in his heart was missing, absolutely. And so, of course, we look at that question, um, what was missing... And from his very question, we see the answer because the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the word do that gives it away. 
Anyone who is doing and accomplishing to inherit eternal life will always find that despite their best efforts, they'll feel deeply empty, insecure, and anxious because the question will plague them, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? I was thinking about the image of the the needle, you know, in this response of Jesus. Camels, needles, cash, you know. And it's when you look at a needle, don't they look pretty perfect? Like they look shiny, they look smooth, don't they? But you go a little bit deeper, chuck it under the microscope, and you'll see it's full of pots and divots. It's actually not perfect at all. I think that picture about humans, you know, we all look to look like to look shiny, don't we? We've got it all together. But just plug, go a little bit deeper, uh, and you'll find. You'll find imperfections. You'll find brokenness. You'll find things aren't actually as shiny and good as it is. And I think we all uh, would fall into that category because we're humans, actually. Um, We are almost constantly trying to justify ourselves, trying to prove to the world that I'm shiny and I've got it together. And this is this man's story. And Jesus latches onto this idea of goodness right at the front end, actually. And I just think Jesus is amazing because he's like, let's you want to talk about goodness? Let's go. Like, it's like immediately, the first thing he says, good teacher. I know that you're good. Well, he says, why do you call me good teacher? Why are, you, why are you saying this? And Jesus is kind of putting his finger onto this conversation about goodness and badness. He says, I have a bone to pick with you, actually. I actually have a bone to pick with you, Jesus is saying, about how you understand what is good and what is bad. Only God is good. And so Jesus hits him with the punchline, hey, you want one more thing to do? You want one more thing to do to inherit eternal life? Sure, here it is. Go and sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. What's Jesus doing? He's actually, he's actually saying that our salvation is by our being involved in the agape ministries and giving everything to the poor. Like, like is, is that what he's saying? Is he saying as a, a works-based salvation? Is he saying it's a, a salvation theology is actually all wrong? It's actually not about what Jesus has done. It's actually about what we do. No, he's not, he's not saying that. What he's saying here is um, he's putting his finger, actually. He's putting pressure on this, what, the per- what this man's functional saviour is. He's asking a question to probe. He's asking a question to put pressure on his heart. The rich young man's value and identity and security was based on his wealth, actually. Um, He'd positioned his wealth on the throne of his heart. And unless it's removed from the throne of his heart, there's actually no place for Jesus there because uh, that, 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 uh, that property... That land on the throne of his heart is already taken up by wealth. And there's no space there for Jesus to take up residence in this man's heart. And so his functional saviour is wealth. And how do we know this? Because the NIV says he walks away sad. Now, to be honest, the NIV doesn't do a great job at translating that word. The better word in that moment is the word grief. He, he walks away grief-stricken. He, he, he walks away grieving. He, he's shaken to the core because he realizes that his wealth is actually his place of security because he can't, uh, he can't give it out. He can't depart from it. 
And so remember, wealth's not bad, but if it's positioned in, incorrectly in your heart, it's actually going to do more harm than good. Uh, this idea of where wealth and riches is positioned in your heart reminds me of the parable um, of the soils. Do you know that parable? Jesus talking about the, the rocky ground, the path, the hard ground, the rocky ground, the, the weedy ground, the thorny ground. And in Matthew 13, 22, it's... Um, I'll, just, I'll pop it up on the screen. It's just a little extract from the whole story, just talking about the soil that has thorns in it. And, and Jesus is explaining the parable, and he says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So we all know that the soil in this parable is referring to the human heart. It's referring to the core, the core of who someone is. And so when wealth is positioned at the center of your heart, it acts like a thorn, causing your heart, the soil of your heart, to be unfruitful. And so we understand this parable. Um, makes sense. But there's a little side picture to this thorn soil conversation, is that uh, when the thorns are positioned correctly, they actually can be quite useful. So let me explain. Um, when a farmer was working the land in ancient times, cultivating the soil, they would remove the thorns, thorn bushes, from the middle of the field, right? Because they actually wanted to use that space. It would, it would make it unfruitful if there were thorns there. So what they did, they picked them up and actually transplanted them into the edges of the field, which would act like a fence, it would act like a barrier so pests wouldn't get in. Potentially foot traffic would be minimized if you've had some sort of barrier there. Those thorns created a barrier. So when we take the thorns, when we take the wealth out of the center of our hearts, out of the center of our lives, and place them at the edges of our lives, actually wealth can become quite useful. Um, the most obvious example of this is um, what they would also do at the edges of the field. They would have gleanings there. Gleanings were kind of the excess um, uh, crops left at the edges for those who were poor. And so the poor would come to the edges as well, and they would be able to uh, get from the gleanings of a field. And this kind of is this picture that when wealth is located at the edges of your heart, it becomes useful. So when you actually uh, develop a culture of generosity to take the wealth that you have and give it and, and give to the poor, what you're doing is you're saying to wealth, wealth, I don't want you to be living in the center of my heart, on the throne of my heart. What I want to do is I want to place it on the edges of my heart. I want to give to the poor. And that is protecting your heart. It's guarding your heart from it being on the throne of your heart. So it's giving room for Jesus to take up residence there with, man, we, we can get so blinded. We can get so blinded by the wealth that we have. And we're living in Perth, Western Australia, in one of the greatest mining states of the world. We are blessed here, people. This is a message for us today. Do not fall victim to the blindness that wealth can do in our hearts. Actually position it correctly in your hearts and allow Jesus to take up residence smack dab in the middle. So really what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, he's saying, hey, let's, let's remove the idol of wealth from your heart, right? And let's see how you go. It's only when Jesus takes up residence in your heart, it's only then that you inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, my story um, isn't necessarily involving wealth, but I suppose the, the, the picture here is we can take good things and make them ultimate things and place them on the throne of our hearts. So I've been in ministry 23 years now. 23 years? Yeah, no, 22 actually. And um, originally I served at Riverview Church um, from, 20, from 2000 to 2012. And in that time, um, Riverview had a campus, a southern campus in Coburn Central, uh, Riverview uh, South, we called it. And I was the campus pastor there. And uh, in about 20, uh, 2011, um, they made a decision to take me and my wife away from that campus and we were to go back to the Burswood campus to be a part of the media team there, which is where I kind of started and was involved uh, from the beginning there. And, and I remember when we left um, the Coburn campus, I remember experiencing something like is described of the rich young ruler. I felt I was deeply wounded. I was grieving. I'd actually lost my confidence. Uh, if you asked me to speak back then, I probably would have said no, because I felt like someone had just torn a limb from my body. Uh, there was something that I was discovering about my role as campus pastor in that moment. Once it was removed, all of a sudden I, I sensed something was deeply troubling in my heart. And, and what had I actually discerned on one, uh, I remember it one Tuesday afternoon, because they'd asked me to speak uh, at, a, at a creative um, session with the team there, and, and I, I remember I couldn't think about anything else to speak about, is where does confidence come from? Because I was feeling none of it. And I had to speak on this thing of confidence. I was not feeling confident at all. And God revealed to me this very truth, and I please don't miss this today, is when your confidence comes from your competence and your competence gets removed, right? The thing that you love, the thing that you're good at, when that thing gets taken out of your life, you see with the most clearest you've ever seen what place that very thing held in your heart. And that thing got removed. And I was, my confidence went with it. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do this anymore. And the reason was, as God set up that very role, that very thing, campus pastor of Coburn Central, right? I, I set that up. That thing, my role, my competence was on the throne of my heart and I was completely unaware of it until the thing got removed from my life and suddenly, guess what was on the throne of my heart? Nothing. Nothing. And Jesus so graciously said, would you like to have me back on the throne of your heart? I said, yes, please. I remember that night, repented before God, asked him, please forgive me that I've allowed you to drift away from my heart and I've put this other thing there that should never have deserved to be there. Wealth can be like that. Actually, any good thing can be like that. And the moment that I repented and said to the Lord, please forgive me, can you please come back and take up residence on the throne of my heart? Oh man, I would have cleaned toilets for the rest of my life because I had the most richest commodity ever achievable by the human heart. The King of Kings took up residence once again and I was free and free indeed. Here's the crazy thing. Like I knew I was, I, the confidence, like there was like, like dark clouds following me around this last few months, you know, going, what the heck? Feeling my confidence had gone. Man, my confidence was back. The sky looked bluer. 
It was amazing. Five days after that moment, the leadership of Riverview come back and say to me, oh, we were flabbergasted. They said, listen, we're actually going to release the campus to become its own church community. And we'd like you and your wife to consider leading it. It's going to not be a Riverview campus. It's going to be its own church. And I tell you, we were so free. We didn't have to say yes to that anymore. But because we were free, we knew God was calling us back to that place. And we said yes. And now it's called the Red Door Community Church. And we've been doing it for 10 years. So understand this. God doesn't want to remove wealth from your world. He doesn't want to remove the good things from your world that are a blessing. But he wants you to position them correctly in your heart. Does that make sense, everyone? This is what's happening in this story. So when we think about this idea of, of uh, you know, is, is, is Jesus presenting a new way of salvation? You know, go and sell it. No, what he's doing, he's putting pressure on the man's heart to see what is there, what is on the throne of his heart. I um, love Mark's accounts here. Uh, the, the, the Luke and Matthew depiction are lovely and stuff, but the, but the Mark's account has verse 21. And verse 21 shapes everything. And it says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Looked at him and loved him. So before Jesus stands this young, self-assured, in many ways arrogant, rich young man, who thinks he's got it nailed, self-righteous idolatra that he is, <laughs> whose trust is in his wealth and money, in his own good behavior, and his moral righteousness. And Jesus sees this man for exactly who he is, broken. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. Oh man, the heart of Jesus. <sighs> so good. See, the immediate thing I would have done was, if I'd have seen that, I would have pointed the finger and go, you broken sinner. But Jesus doesn't do that. He looks at him and loves him. The immediate thing that Jesus does after this man's lifted off his bunch of accomplishments and says, all of these I've done since I was a boy, Jesus loves him. So before he even corrects him, before he even challenges him, before he does anything, he looks at the man and he loves him. I just imagine what those eyeballs stare looked like when he looked at him and loved him. They're not eyes of judgment, not eyes of a shaking head, you know, that little subtle shake, you know. With eyes of love, acceptance. Let's be clear. Jesus isn't loving him because he's some moral, uh, you know, he's got morally perfect somehow. Jesus is loving him because Jesus loves him. Jesus loves unconditionally. Jesus' love is demonstrated to us today in the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel today, let me tell you that all of us are broken. Our sin separates us from our destination. Our destination was always to be close to the Father who loves us dearly. The gospel is the story that God's love was revealed in Jesus, that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin so we no longer need to pay it ourselves because it is already paid by Him for those who believe in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And to prove that that sacrifice is real, to assure it in our hearts, he didn't just die, he rose from the, from the grave, defeating sin and death and declaring to every single one of humanity that his punish, the punishment that Jesus took means our sins are paid in full. 
And we no longer need to do anything but other than just receive and be open. This is the love story of God to us. You see, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to help the truly poor, you and me. As I use that story to illustrate the gospel, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to help us, the poor and needy. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you and I might become rich. See, Jesus left heavenly riches. He was in heaven with the Father. He left that in order, he became poor by taking on human form. He left his riches in order to purchase us through his poverty, through his death on a cross, that we would be his for all eternity. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to have us. And will we give up everything to honor him in response? The fact that we consider our service, our submission, our worship, of Jesus is actually all in response to a fact. It's all in response to the fact that he first loved us. See, this, first, this young man, he's doing all this stuff, but he hasn't yet seen the love of God yet. He's trying to achieve God's acceptance without realizing that he has it. It's a free gift. So before you try to do anything for Jesus, first just please receive his love for you. Once you do... Once you truly receive his love for you, there's this new trust that begins to evolve in your heart. There's this new moment of you melt, you melt really. You melt in the Father's arms. You melt in his arms of love for you. It's a safe place, the most secure place, actually. The place that you realize it's not about you, it's about Jesus, the King. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to end on this story. And I'm going to tell you this story and... I'm not going to explain it too much, but I want you to receive this story as a kind of like a, what Jesus was doing, just probing what's on the throne of your heart today, what's there. Once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now this man, he loved his king, and so he came and presented of all things, this carrot to the king. This is my best carrot in my garden. The best carrot my garden will ever grow. Actually receive it as a token of my love and honour of you. The king discerned his heart of love and devotion and saw that he wanted nothing in return. It moved the king and the king gave the gardener far more land than he currently had for his garden. And the man went home rejoicing. Now there was a nobleman in the area, a nobleman at the court of conversation. He overheard this conversation and he thought to himself, wow, if that's the response the Lord makes to such a small gift, a carrot, what would he give in response to a great one? The next day he brought the king a fine horse saying, this is the best horse my stables will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love and honour. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart and in response, he just received the 
horse and dismissed the giver. When the king saw the look of confusion on the man's face, he said, the gardener's gift was a gift indeed out of honour, but you were just trying to make a profit. You see, the gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. I tell this story to probe your heart, to ask the question, what's on the throat of your heart today? Is it you? Is it your competence? Is it your wealth? Or is it Jesus? It could be something good. Your family, your children, your marriage, your spouse. But when those things become ultimate things, they'll end up becoming hurtful and provide a blockage, a restriction of Jesus really taking up residence there. And so, Father, today for all of us, God, we want you on the throne of our hearts. And sometimes we are blinded. We don't see. We don't see what's there. We don't see what's truly taken up residence until it actually is removed. And Father, you don't want to hurt us. You long to lead us. And so today, as we think about this rich young ruler and this moment of him seeing himself as he really was, God, today we want to ask, humbly ask, that you would show who we really are, what's really going on on the throne of our hearts. And if there's something there that's not of you, God, we want to repent today and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me that uh, what's there is not, it's not you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, please come and illuminate the real condition of our hearts to us, to ourselves, that we'd have a new heightened self-awareness. Father, thank you for every person here today. And I bless you with, with a heightened self-awareness that you would see what things are really like and that you would run to Jesus and say, Jesus, come back and take up residence on the throne of my heart because you are the center of it all. You are the reason for it all. I am not the most important person in the room. Jesus, you are. And so, Father, we ask, God, that your Spirit would come and liberate our hearts and minds. That we would be free and free indeed. In Jesus' name. Amen.